Hello, and welcome back to the Agents of Change and Environmental Justice podcast, a partnership between Environmental Health News and Columbia University Mailman School of Public Health. I'm Brian Binkowski, Senior Editor at Environmental Health News and the editor of Agents of Change. Let's get right to it today because I'm so excited about today's episode. Senior fellows Dr. Robbie Parks, Yan Michael Archer, and Marissa Chan discuss what it means to be biracial. It is such an illuminating conversation on identity. Enjoy. Hey, everyone. My name is Yan. Hi, I'm Robbie. Hi, everyone. I'm Marissa. We are part of the 2023 cohort of the Agents of Change and Environmental Justice Fellowship. And we are here to have a conversation about what it means to be biracial. We're we're all biracial. And I'm really excited to speak with Robbie and Marissa um, about my experience and, and what that means for the work that I do right now in environmental justice. So let's kick it off with just letting folks know who we all are. Robbie, do you want to jump into it? Absolutely. Thanks, Jan. Uh, my name is Robbie Parks. I'm an assistant professor at Columbia University in Environmental Health Sciences. Uh, and I am from a background where I grew up in London in the UK, uh, but my mum uh, was from the Philippines uh, and my dad was uh, from another nation in the UK other than England, which was Scotland, originally from Glasgow. So I'm sort of half Filipino, half uh, British, I suppose. Yeah. Thank you. Maybe Marissa, you want to go next? Sounds good. Thanks, Robbie. Um, first off, thank you both so much for the invitation to chat with you all today. I'm really excited to have this conversation. And for the folks listening, my name is Marissa Chan. I'm a PhD candidate at Harvard TH Chan School of Public Health in the Department of Environmental Health. And in terms of just me and where I've come from, I'm originally from California, but my parents are from outside of the US. So my dad was born and raised in Hong Kong and my mom was actually born in London, but um, her side of the family is from the Caribbean. So St. Vincent and St. Lucia. And so I'm Afro-Caribbean and Chinese. And yeah, that's just a little bit about me. Piggybacking off of that and kind of bringing it full circle, I guess, I am of Guyanese heritage. So that means my mom and my dad are from a country at the northern edge of, of South America called Guyana. And my mom is of Indian descent. My dad is of African descent. And in Guyana and other parts of the Caribbean, I would be called Dugla, um, which is basically kind of a reflection of that half-half relationship or, or progeny. Um, and Marissa, I am also super just happy that you are here because speaking of bringing it full circle, this the idea for this podcast, for this episode, came from a conversation that you and Robbie had at the retreat last October. So I feel like the one who was kind of like brought in on this conversation. So I'm really excited. No, you for definitely, <laughs> you definitely joined in on that conversation. It was definitely all three of us chatting a bit about our experiences. So yeah, I definitely I, w- I was facing the other way and my ears just kind of perked up. <laughs> it's like, oh, other people like me. <laughs> um, yeah, let's I, I mean, let's let's chat about just what that multicultural biracial background has looked like over, over the years for, for each of us. Um, Robbie, why don't, why don't you start? So thanks, Jan. And again, I would just like to thank Marissa and, and, and you, Jan, for, for making this happen. I mean, we, we sat here and I, this is such a privilege. So um, I am, you know, very, in some people would say, I probably come across as very British, and in some ways, I am. 
However, like growing up, I think I really didn't uh, fit into any one particular group. And so, you know, my mum was always providing me, although she didn't provide me with, um, you know, uh, an ability to understand or speak uh, the the languages that she spoke, Tagalog and Ilongo in the Philippines, very much a big part of the culture was part of my growing up. So going to parties and just hanging out with other Filipino uh, visitors to the UK and um, meeting other uh, friends and family from the wider Filipino uh, diaspora, <clears throat> of which some were in the United States and Canada. Um, and and on the other side of things, my you know my dad was you know, very, a very open, uh, uh, loving guy, but, you know, very much from the white working class tradition of, of Scotland. And, and so, you know, that mix meant that I felt like I had lots of different influences, but didn't quite fit into any one particular group. So at school, people would, you know, ask me what I was and, and I wouldn't know how to, to answer. Um, and I think part of that, um, really has stuck with me through the years and not feeling necessarily like I belong anywhere, uh, but also at the same time feeling like I belong to two groups. So it really is a big privilege for me, but it is also kind of maybe a, a sort of invisible burden that I think a lot of us uh, who are from multiracial backgrounds carry. And so that has stuck with me through my whole life. And I think that duality of feeling like I belong to multiple communities, but also not really to any communities is, is something which I, I sort of strongly feel as I go through my life and career. Yeah. It, the folks on the other side of the podcast will not see that we're all just like emphatically nodding. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Because uh, we are doing this on Zoom. Yeah, no, I, I can definitely relate to that, Robbie. In Guyana, when, and when my parents were younger and, you know, at the time that they got married, um, being of Indian descent, my mom was very much expected to kind of go with go the arranged marriage route. And so she completely bucked that system, um, didn't just, you know, kind of decide to to marry who she wanted, but like then decided to marry outside of her race. And that was a big deal to her family. And she got mm. excommunicated and it, it had a really big impact on her and on her own identity and, and her personhood that was very easy to, for me to see growing up because she had like a very kind of cold or harsh perspective towards other Indian people. But, uh, but it's, you know, that's, that stuff is real. I, there, you know, that, that created some trauma that, that then I absorbed or at least observed um, growing up in terms of what does it mean for my identity as someone who is Indian Um you know, but, you know, the person that I love doesn't really have a great opinion of these folks. And then from from my dad's side of things, it was also kind of strained and fraught because he grew up at a time in Guyana that where it was still very colonial. Um, and so he has some of this like indoctrinated, inculcated anti-blackness kind of, you know, these 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 affinities to the crown and to, to the British systems and, and whiteness there. Um and so both of my, both my my mom and my dad came over to the U.S. and tried to identify, you know, where they fit in as immigrants. And and you kind of look at who has proximity to power and who has proximity to privilege in the United States, and it's it's definitely not black folks. So I, I feel like that also um, impacted how my dad, who is black, kind of interacted and engaged with black culture over over here in the states. And and that's something I also kind of absorbed and observed. 
the result was like, you know, little Yan was like, felt like super otherized, like a margin of a margin. Um, and we're going to end on a high note. <laughs> yeah, I, I think like the silver lining of that is just kind of, you know, occupying these spaces of discomfort can be very kind of strengthening and hardening for better or for worse. But in my experience, it's also created a lot of empathy, I think, for me when I see othered and marginalized people that that aren't Indian or black or biracial, you know, just like the the outsiders, I kind of have this this kinship that I feel because I went through that. What about you, Marissa? Mm, I really, really appreciate you both for sharing all of that. And just for the podcast listeners, again, a lot of nodding on <laughs> all of our friends. I feel like the shared ideas brought up about feeling otherized, not feeling like they fit in. I truly resonate. And I feel like there's a lot of stories um, in different spaces at school or just within both communities. You never really feel like you fit in. But one point that I think is also really interesting that Robbie really brought up is the idea of folks asking, what are you? Mm. That has been something my entire life that people on the street, random folks that I have no connection to, as well as people who I do know, just asking, what are you? And it is just such an interesting experience that I'm not sure a lot of folks really, unless you've engaged um, or engaged in some way in, in the space where you feel like you either do not present a certain way. Um, but really all this to say that that is just a really interesting experience where a lot of folks feel the need to classify or characterize you or put you into groups for their own personal, I don't even know if it's benefit or gain, but they truly feel a need to go out of their way to ask you, um, what are you, which I think is pretty, to be honest, rude. Yeah. Um, and even <laughs> yeah. beyond that, it's it there's was one experience, I think, in undergrad where we ordered pizza because what else do you do in college? Um, and the person who delivered the pizza asked what I, I, I am. And I told him and he said, no, you're Filipino. Funny connection. But um, I'm like, no, I'm not. But just the fact that people are so adamant about what you are, what you're not, and feel the need to classify um, us as something is just really an interesting experience that I've encountered. But on the positive note, because we are ending on the positive note, I think something that I've also really encountered growing up, which I appreciated being from a multicultural background, is the food. Oh, I think yeah. a lot of my experiences are connected to food. So some of my favorite food being like dim sum, um, as well as caldo and crab, which is a, a dish my grandma used to make. I'm a, a popular Caribbean dish. So I think food also really, really brings us together and allows us to, to have these shared experiences. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thank you for sharing, Marissa. I really resonate with that. And I think, you know, partly what people probably uh it, you know, it's probably coming from a place of kindness in, or what they think is genuine or genuine curiosity to ask, what, like, who are you? What are you? But it, I think highlighting the fact that that, like a lot of things, can can make people feel or trigger people in a way that they, they need to understand that that isn't always necessarily an appropriate thing to do. And I think, in fact, it's rarely mm -hmm. appropriate because, you know, the reference point coming from a, oh, I want to identify in a, in a human taxonomy kind of way where people are from. And, and, and in, of course, everyone's on the spectrum with regards to where they're from too. But um, those kind of questions, certainly for me, um, 
like yourself, they, they could be pretty, pretty annoying. And I think, and, uh, and just quickly on the, on the, yeah. And just on the food point, you know, I, yeah, I'm doubly grateful for my mum's side because no, no offense to <laughs> Scottish food, but it's not, it's not really something I, I vibe with particularly. <laughs> so I know <laughs> so, I, I do love, I love, I love British culture too, but, um, but the Filipino food is something that that really sticks with me when I show people my friends uh, and, and and other people uh, pictures from my youth. And, you know, just sitting, my mum would literally sit me next to the, the food. And then that would be a picture that is worth taking every mm. single time we're at a party. And that that really sticks with me as a memory. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And and for me, just kind of continuing this, the shared experience of like who, the who are you question, for me, it was doubly discomforting because it almost always came from black folks and especially at a time when i lived in wider well-to-do more affluent communities like in in orlando florida um i was at a a time in my life kind of like you know 10 11 12 when i really wanted to fit in and surrounded by whiteness i really and I'm, i'm not happy about it but I really downplay, I really upplayed the dynamic of like, oh, I'm not just black, I'm exotic. I am also Indian, you know? And and I, I did that because, you know, I saw like how the white kids treated the black folks and just how the world treated black folks. And I was like, well, let me, let me align, again, align myself as I saw other people in my life. Let me align myself with that privilege. But then it kind of flipped in his head when I moved back to Stone Mountain, which was predominantly black. And I just wanted to be, you know, blackity black, black, you know, I wanted to lean really hard and reconnect to that part of my culture. Now, surrounded by so many other, you know, black folks, it would always be like, you know, black women and black girls who would would like scrutinize my hair and be like, oh, why is your hair so curly? Like, you know, or like my eyelashes or like anything, any of these features that that outed me as like not being a hundred percent black. I was like, no, no, no. Like, don't, don't point out these things. I'm black. <laughs> uh, yeah. That was part of, that was a little bit of part of, of that, how that played out for me. It'd be your own people sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I also really relate with some of those experiences you shared. Um, during my time, I worked at a black reproductive justice organization in South LA And while I was there, a lot of the times when I was tabling um, at community events or other spaces, a lot of folks would read the sign and then look at me and then ask, where's the black woman? Um, So I I truly understand and resonate with everything that we've shared so far. Yeah, that's that's so like, oh, that's so hard to hear because you show up to do the work and it's almost like your credibility, not even almost like immediately your credibility uh, is kind of challenged in, in doing the work. I think this transitions really well into the conversation about like how has this impacted us in the environmental justice spaces? I, yeah, I think, you know, just on the point about identifying and being identified in a certain way, I think in some ways that I had the pressure to identify with the white side of my background. And I think I think I did that to the point maybe where I feel now that my Filipino side might be, or I worry it might be irretrievably lost. And that mm. that's a big part. And especially mm. if anyone who read my essay, you know, my, my mom isn't around anymore. She passed away a few years ago. And I feel sort of grabbing at thin air. And it, in some ways, I sort of want to, to, to reclaim it more and more. But um, the, the, the 
the default for me, and that that's a great shame for me, is 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 maybe being seen as white and and feeling like I have attributes um, associated with with the, you know white culture in the UK especially. And I think going to university, going to college, that really I don't know whether it's external pressure or internal pressure, but for me that was a huge pressure that made me sort of wear certain clothes, uh, act a certain way, speak a certain way. And I think that that's something maybe, I don't know if many people identify with who have an ability to be seen as a certain, from a certain culture or a certain other culture, that that is really something I haven't read a huge amount about in terms, you know, there's, there's the concept of white passing and things like that. But, but I, I, I sort of feel like if I had the chance, I'd really love to uh, be able to claim the other side of me too. So um, just it was you, you guys talking about that just made me think of that too. But. Yeah. I work in a lot of black communities now, um, you know, in, environmental justice communities that are, that are facing toxic exposures from air pollution and traffic. And I develop these, these really strong connections with these folks because I go and I break bread. Sometimes I stay at their houses and it's really gratifying. And, and at those times, I really feel connected to my own blackness. And especially when I go down to places like Uniontown, because it's, it's another Southern, you know, location, kind of that feeling of kind of reconnecting. Um, but at the same time, there's this, this shame that I feel in terms of questioning my own authenticity my like how how can we talk about being biracial without talk of, talking about interracial dating right <laughs> or just interracial relationships and so you know my my partner is white and and sometimes there's this specter of you know bringing her around because i've built up this you know in the work that i'm doing it's it's so focused on doing what's right for black folks and and i earnestly you know that's part of my core that's part of my you know, what I'm bring my passion that I bring for the work. Um, but, but then kind of being, having this hesitation of like, okay, now how do I introduce that I'm dating a white woman, you know, into, to, to these folks. And honestly, it's, you know, just, it, it comes down to just being, being who you are. Right. And just putting your most authentic self forward and, and saving the anxiety for therapy. I think, <laughs> <laughs> what do you all think about that? Yeah, completely agree. I think I've actually, I completely forgot about this experience until you just mentioned it, but I had someone in the past ask, how do I contend with the fact that I'm dating someone who's white while working in environmental justice? And I think it was a really interesting question. I don't know if a lot of folks are asked this, but I think as you kind of mentioned, it comes down to who I am, who we are, and who the person you're dating is, and just being authentically you in whatever spaces you enter. But I think it's an interesting question that um, has come up for me. I'm not sure if either of you have experienced someone just directly asking you that and what your response might be, but I think that's also an interesting kind of, I guess, pivot from, not even pivot, just extension of this conversation based on what you mentioned. Yeah, I mean... I think in terms of parental pressure, I think my, you know, my mom, who I love very much, would always, well, she would always say two things. She'd always say, whenever I had any adversity, she would just say, keep studying. And I think she would say that <laughs> even into my, to age 30 and and beyond. Uh, so she was very focused on education. But then she would also say that 
you know, Filipina girl for, was the was the right girl for me, whoever that was. And so uh, there's definitely that parental pressure from from probably my dad as well because he put he married a Filipina, so he probably would agree. But um, <laughs> you know, I guess maybe as a rebellion, I never went down that road or yet, at least yet. But um, that's definitely on my mind is the idea of what she thought the ideal person would be, and the pressure I always felt if I had a a, a new girlfriend who who was was a white girlfriend and uh she would uh ask particular questions like does she know how to um do this or that and uh you know that would always be uh uh a little bit awkward let's say so uh, <laughs> yeah yeah i think it's something i mean your your mom's not totally off uh she says she's not totally off because maybe i would substitute or paraphrase you know instead of like keep studying just like keep showing up and keep learning about who you're working with and, and, you know, just have the conversations, right. I mean, stay committed to the work uh, and don't get distracted. I, I think it's, it can definitely be discouraging when, you know, Marissa, the first thing someone says is like, Oh, where's the black woman. Right. But, you know, just kind of keep your eye on the ball in terms of, are we here to get, recognized for what we're doing or are we here to do the work uh i don't know maybe that's maybe that's an idealistic <laughs> uh perspective on it no i i agree i think for me it is about the work and it's about the communities we work with and for um so i completely agree with that it it is discouraging to get those comments but from the other side of things i've also experienced the comments of like oh you're so well spoken mm. you get all everywhere in between. So I think it's really specifically, oh, you're so well-spoken while working for a black women's organization. Um, So I think it's really just having to navigate and I don't even know if dodge is the right word, but dodge some of these questions that feel very personal, Um, but folks are interested and maybe well-intentioned in their, in their interest. But it, it, I definitely think it is a notable thing that, that I've experienced. And it sounds like we've all experienced as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I think that, you know, it, it, it's just segueing into the idea of the challenges in, in the environmental justice space. I think the idea of your community is, you know, certainly drives the work that we do. Um, and so, you know, just, just to kind of think about that for me, it's like the, the it's both a privilege as a ch- and a challenge, as, as I'd said before, the, the privilege is, you have multiple communities, but then the challenge is also, you know, identifying who your community uh, is in particular and and who might see you as part of the community. So, so although it is about the work, I do think it's really important that there is a conversation, which is what we're having, I think, which is how do, you know, how do communities involve and make people feel welcome who don't necessarily fit mm-hmm. the presupposed idea about what members of the community look like or or sound like or or um you know where they come from and i think you know that that's that's a key question i think is a really interesting question in our field is how we deal with that i just wonder what you you both thought of that too no i think i think that's super critical because it it has to do with obviously resources are siloed in certain places and i I keep coming back to this refrain of 
proximity to power and privilege and money, right? And and so obviously, so so that's a reality in terms of where these resources are coming from and the biases attached to that money. But also it's a reality that these are communities, these are folks that have been met with like real trauma, real harm from these organizations or, or systems or entities that then they're expected to just like, you know, bury the hatchet and, and come to the table with and, and, you know, after being blocked out from, from having these conversations for so long. So yeah, I think there shouldn't be an assumption or an expectation that, oh, we're good now just because there's an opportunity to come up and, and do something about this, this decades, you know, this legacy of harm there, there has to be that, that first step of trust building and, and, you know, getting to know each other and, and, and having those little like test fires of of those building those relationships and kind of making sure that okay if i identify that i'm not a good fit because someone i'm working with or or the team i'm working with the community organization i'm working with has has its own kind of biases and and you know they don't want to operate with me um then do I just drop it and walk away or do I try to reach out to my network and see like, all right, what's the pivot? What's the move? How can we still get justice in this, in this case and still, and make so that make it so that everyone feels like they're, they're valued and they're, they're being heard and like, you know, they're getting it on their terms and not just forced into this box of justice that, that has been thrust upon them. Yeah. I think that is a really important point in all of this in terms of relationship building and all the work that it takes um, to work, to have the privilege to work with communities. And Mm. sometimes it won't be a good fit. And just understanding that is a part of the process. Uh, One interesting thing that I've encountered in the work that I do and in the context of our conversation about being multiracial and biracial is people don't know what to do with biracial folks in Mm. kind of the beauty justice personal care product world right now. Um, A lot of the work either classifies folks as other, so in some ways otherizing them, just I think the rationale behind it is for a sample size perspective, but what it does maybe unintentionally or maybe in some cases intentionally for folks in terms of actually placing these folks in the other category, I don't think is really talked through. Um, or the other side of things where these people are just dropped, their data is just excluded based on the sample size again, and what that really means in terms of exposure to some of these personal care product chemicals that I work with, as well as potentials um, surrounding the disparities or inequities in health outcomes. We're not really examining that right now in this space, and I really think there needs to be a push towards incorporating more diverse folks, not only just in terms of um, racial ethnic composition, but in terms of other categories as well. So that is something I'm not sure if you've all experienced that in the fields that you work in, but I think maybe it's controversial to say in this in my space, but I don't <laughs> think we've really um, done enough work in terms of thinking through how we intentionally incorporate uh, biracial and multiracial folks. Yeah, wasn't there a big that that was kind of a prominent feature of the most recent census, right? How uh, there there are more biracial or mixed race mixed race folks in the country than there has ever been, and you know the trend will continue to to increase. Yeah, absolutely. I think you know in terms of the way that 
you know, even filling out a survey to say, you know, what's your race ethnicity now, at least you could tick more than one box, but, um, mm-hmm. you know, and in, in many ways there are more categories, but I still find myself, uh, ticking white and, and then Asian, but for some reason, Asian feels very strange to me to be ticking that box because I'm mm-hmm. from the Philippines. And of course, Asia goes from all the way from Turkey all the way to the Philippines. So I think there's a lot of work to be done in terms of trying to understand what the different nuances are coming from different places are, especially just by themselves, but especially as a mix, because those mixes, you know, those combinations are sort of so many that I think people are overwhelmed. But, um, you know, just every time, just from a personal perspective, every time I fill in those surveys, (laughs) I always feel a little bit sad because I'm like, I don't feel like my true representation is being uh, translated onto the page. And I think that's sort of reflective of a wider problem of just trying to understand how to define people who don't fit into very traditional, very obvious um, buckets of of kinds. So, uh, so yeah, I think that 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 certainly made me think of that too. Yeah, and and I think this is another kind of silver lining, right? Because for me, at least, going through that as a kid, taking the standardized tests, or, or just whenever the first time you encounter having to identify yourself on paper, I maybe I'm just pulling this out of my wherever, but like, I think it created this sense of appreciation for, for the gray areas in life. Right. Like there's something to be said about not seeing yourself represented in a system and then wanting better for that system and, and having that awareness, you know, whereas other folks who have been able to just check, you know, African-American or black, just check white, just check whatever. Um, they might not have that awareness that this is something that, you know, a big chunk of folks are are contending with. Yeah. And just to, to your point, yeah. And I mean, the fact that, you know, it, I think the, the people being of mixed background is only going to increase the proportion of the population. And yet it is a, a relatively un, uh, understudied as, as to Marissa's point and sort of, misunderstood uh, group of people although of course by definition completely heterogeneous i mean no no single uh, mix of no single mm. person is the same but there are so many mixtures of people that i think yeah you know, again we run the risk of trying to categorize them all as as other and then that creates its own problems and so you know it's really really sort of a, a deep and, and 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 wicked kind of uh, uh a riddle to solve there mm-hmm especially in the context of environmental justice. Yeah. yeah. It's kind of also interesting. This conversation has made me think back. We interviewed for the podcast that I work on with my advisor, um, an author, Lori Tharps, and a lot of that conversation surrounded some, for some folks, unknown, quote unquote, history in America. And she really highlighted the fact that interracial dating relations that were not purely just relationships, but like friendships, um, economic relationships and so on have been happening as old as time. They've just not really been documented, discussed, or really captured for whatever reason. So I think while the census and a lot of the things now are speaking towards the fact that people being biracial and multiracial is going to increase exponentially or whatever, um, as we go on in the future, it has been happening as well um, throughout time. So I think it is also while we look forward, it's also important for us to highlight and acknowledge historically that this has also occurred. I might not be the best person to speak towards those details <laughs> in terms of 
how that has looked, but I know there has been some work that has really tried to highlight the fact that this has been happening and it will continue to happen. I think that's really critical. It's it's important to know like who is where like first of all that that this is being worked on and and who's you know who has the answers <laughs> or who's looking for the answers. Um because obviously the answer is not to all right, now we'll just make sh- make sure every standardized test has mestizo and mulatto and octoroon and all these and dugla right that's that's not the way we want to go we don't want to if the problem if the source of the problem is like categoriz- categorization or optimization and all of these kind of the devils of efficiency we want to make sure we're not trying to solve the problem with that same solution yeah, mm. and, 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 yeah. I mean, even with the labels, I mean, label. I, I so my mum grew up calling me a mestizo uh, because in the Philippines that's half Filipino and half uh, those uh, not Filipino, and um, so there, it was always a loving term. But um, I, I only recently realised it's not always a loving term in other cultures. So, um, mm. so I think those labels even are, are really sensitive to to place and time. Um, and uh, so, so it's an education for me, too, in that sense, especially in the United States, where the reference points are slightly different from other parts in the world, too. Uh, yeah. yeah, for me, I think the first time I heard the term Blasian was an undergrad. And I don't know it was like a weird moment of like, oh, there may or may not be a term for me, but also what does that mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so that was an interesting moment as well. So it's interesting to hear all these different uh, the multitude of feelings we have for for these yeah. terms. But I'm, I'm kind of curious as well that you brought up, Ian, um, the whole idea of characterization for efficiency. I'm curious. I don't really know the answer to this. So if you all don't know an answer, maybe this is a broader question for folks just to think about. But in terms of why people feel the need to categorize biracial and multiracial folks, do you have any thoughts about that? I'm turning this podcast interview back on you all. Sorry. Um, <laughs> But that is something I really don't know an answer to. But that, yeah, how you kind of brought up the whole efficiency point. I I had never thought about that from that aspect. But yeah. There's this amazing quote that goes, there is nothing more potentially hostile than the indigenous ego interpreting the laws of his conqueror upon his own people. And the first in that that's from Domingo Martinez in his book, Boy Kings of Texas. And the first time I heard that, I thought about kind of my placement. Actually, I thought about my placement as an academic working in in community spaces. You know, what baggage and biases am I bringing from the academy to this community? And what am I trying to interpret on on these people, Um, even if they might give me a pass because of my black skin? But I also think of it now in terms of just being biracial and like that that sense of identity and, and trying to fit in. You know what's what's lost when you're when we're trying to circle that square. You know it it speaks to assimilation, right? And how we this this kind of drive to to fit in and to be a part of the system and 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 be valued by the system. You know we we end up adopting some of these kind of really awful aspects of the system, right? So I think it's a little bit of that in terms of a societal way. But also maybe just a very human way of of our own, you know, reckoning with our own identities. We want to know what we are philosophically, right? Um, mm. But but again, maybe that's just a Western treatment of sense of self and sense of identity. I appreciate that. I feel like I appreciate both those comments and just thinking through 
how complex and multifaceted and somewhat nebulous this all is, but mm -hmm. there are the, all these different drivers. So it is really interesting to hear all of your perspectives on. And I do completely agree. I think going back to the taxonomy and the, the need for folks to figure out who is in the in versus out groups and kind of the legacy of colonialism and racism for certain spaces and places, I think is apparent. Um, yeah. Yeah. This is so such a great conversation that we're having because I feel seen <laughs> and maybe that's kind of selfish, right? But yes, but yes. I feel like, you know, where, where would I have gone to, to, to get this kind of dialogue before now? No, I agree. I feel like being in a space with folks who understand this experience and this part of me, I think is very unique. So I appreciate you both. Yeah. I, I certainly feel seen too. So I really, really appreciate it. And it's, it's sort of sometimes not knowing how much of a burden one carries because sometimes there aren't names for things. And so, you know, as soon as names are identified and, and, and things uh, for these kind of burdens, then only do I realize, Oh wait, I've carried this my whole life. And I mm. now know because I can speak to friends and, and colleagues like yourselves who can say oh no wait that feeling is a feeling i've had too and i've always felt a little bit like i haven't fit in even with my co own communities is, is is exactly yeah i totally agree this conversation has, has been almost therapeutic in its uh, <laughs> uh usefulness to me so thank you yeah the power the power of of collective discourse and consciousness raising and ah I, my my heart is so full That's all for this week, folks. Wasn't that great? I know I learned a lot this episode. If you enjoyed this podcast, visit agentsofchangenej.org. You can see all the essays, all the podcasts, stay on top of what's going on with our program and our fellows. And while you're there, click the donate button to support us. You can also find us on X and Instagram. And please follow us on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was written, recorded by Robbie Parks and Yan Michael Archer, produced and edited by me, with outreach, scheduling, and support from the rest of the team. Dr. Ami Zoda, Dr. Yoshira Ornelas Van Horn, Dr. Vina Singla, Dr. Max Ong, Dr. Lariah Edwards, Summer Ahmad, and Maria Paula Rubiano. Our music is now sung by Poddington Bear. Want to know a great way to stay up to date with us? Sign up for our monthly Agents of Change newsletter at the program homepage. Thanks so much for joining us. We hope to keep these important conversations on diversity in science and health going. Have a great week, folks. <laughs>